Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Cap Converse podcast. Today we're joined uh, by Andre Boris. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Andre Boris. I'm a postdoc in the Hevia group at the University of Bern in Switzerland. Awesome. So, yeah, we start off our kind of every episode with kind of a bit about your journey to date. So kind of, could you tell us about kind of your journey from undergrad to postgrad and kind of what do you think was your most memorable kind of university experience? Yes. So I uh, did my undergrad actually in forensic chemistry at the University of Kent. And it was only kind of during that, that as it progressed, that I lead more towards chemistry and strayed away from forensics. I think... I was quite late into getting into research, so those third-year research projects that I found really interesting. And it was during that time that I, directly after my undergrad, so not even the master's, I applied for some PhD programs. They were all within the University of Kent, so I was uh, told to apply for one by an organic lecturer. In fact, uh, I didn't get that position, but then one of the other people who were on the panel uh, was more of a main group inorganic chemist and was really interested so offered me a position that was something very different so I did my experience in some traditional organic chemistry labs and was brought in to do main group inorganic chemistry uh, so I was just thrown in at the deep end and it was incredible like my supervisor Dr Ewan Clark was super enthusiastic I was his first PhD student so the first member kind of full member of the group so I got all the hands-on training and everything. And yeah, just straight into research, it was, I fell in love with it. I did that for three years. So I did my PhD, completed it quite quickly and went on to do a, my first postdoc uh, at the University of Edinburgh in the Cali group. So again, more main group chemistry, uh, this time less applied main group chemistry, more fundamental, which was something I was really interested in pursuing. I was there for a year and that was, again, fantastic. Uh, more of an established group now, so it was great to be part of a bigger team uh, and obviously to experience in another city. I loved Edinburgh. Uh, can't say much about the rest of Scotland, sadly, yet, but I'm sure it's all wonderful. Uh, and then quite early on, I was there for a year, but quite early on in that postdoc, I had already uh, kind of been offered another postdoc now in Canada, so at York University that was in Toronto, and that was joint with uh, Professor Thomas Gartner and Chris Caputo. So I was joint between the two groups, and it was kind of a collaborative project, and that was more applied, so still main group chemistry, still phosphorus chemistry, which is kind of my speciality, uh, and it was more to do with optoelectronic properties and stuff like that, so it was nice to get a new background into a different kind of chemistry, a list, less synthesis, more uh, application, which was good to get that experience. That was kind of uh, disrupted by COVID as many other people's kind of research was. So I was only there for about eight months. And then I took up my current position here at the University of Bern. So that was in June, 2020. And I've been here since. The chemistry I do now is very different. It's still classed as main group chemistry or was because it's now S block chemistry versus P block. Uh, but I primarily do transition metal chemistry now. So it's more of a organometallic chemistry now. And that's where I am today. Uh, I'm hoping that in the next half a year or so, I'll 
be getting independent fellowships uh, to start my own academic career. Wow, that's what a journey. <laughs> that, that's really cool. Um, I, I actually had like a couple of questions that coming from, from your, your story. Um, so I guess first was, uh, I was curious to hear more about how your experience in forensic science, first, what made you switch to, to like chemistry and specialize in chemistry? Um, and how was that? Because I know that when people come from different backgrounds, you, they have like a different way of looking at science and, and it's actually like makes them unique and their science approach unique. So like, could you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I had a broad interest in forensics. I think everyone's kind of brought in through CSI New York and all the shows like that. I know it's very, uh, once you have your inner degree doing forensic science or forensic chemistry, you realize, realize even more that that's obviously uh, very uh, jazzed up, let's say. So you're not one minute shooting guns, the next doing some NMR spectroscopy and catching the killer, let's say. But there was still a lot of, I was still interested in it the whole time. So it was good to get that experience. And I think focusing into chemistry afterwards, you just have a more analytical mindset going through it. So, and I think it was good to get kind of some background in maths and physics and stuff like that, even though it isn't something I pursued further. So I think the main thing I took away from the forensic chemistry was just being very analytical, uh, sometimes even just taking a step back and kind of tracing back to try and reach a conclusion for a project, let's say. But yeah, I kind of just drifted towards chemistry towards the end. I still enjoyed forensics, but you can realise that it's a difficult uh, profession to be in, and it's very hard to even get a position in forensics, uh, especially in the UK, it's limited. Uh, and I realized when you do stuff like mock uh, defenses in the actual Crown Court, uh, that you realize, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too much pressure. <laughs> There's too much riding on this. Uh, so kind of doing some more fundamental research and exploratory science was the way I wanted to go. Yeah. That's really interesting to hear kind of that yeah, journey and how you kind of drifted into the main group chemistry. And it seems like that's kind of your kind of love now um, of all the kind of different areas. Yeah, I just, I'd never even heard of it before. And I even remember the first time I had like a chat with my PhD supervisor to talk through the project. I don't remember a word he said, like regarding the chemistry. I just knew that he was super enthusiastic and that I think obviously has passed on to me and that's how I kind of fell into it. It wouldn't matter what the project would have been with him as a supervisor, it would have infected anyone, I think. So no. I was fortunate at that early stage, especially having little research experience to be trusted to be able to develop the skills to do that project. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. I think, yeah, for sure, having an enthusiastic supervisor, one that can support you through like what can often be a difficult kind of three or four years you know it's um it's great so no that's brilliant i think i've seen you and actually on twitter so i think uh, as you are kind of a, a kind of a big advocate for it and yeah we'll talk about it later but you know it's great to see you know the community on twitter have grown so much over the past kind of five six years so no, that's brilliant so you know you told us offline before we started that you've kind of all over the world um so in england scotland switzerland and canada so just kind of wondered like how have you found your research say in switzerland compared to the uk is there a lot of differences in terms of culture and other kind of aspects 
It's hard to say on culture because the group that the group here kind of a lot of them came from Scotland before, so there's still at least the people, and even my supervisor Ava was maybe had more experience or knew what it would like there. Uh, Switzerland has a lot more money, so there's kind of better resources for that. Obviously, that's very dependent on the group and university, but that's clearly something that's there. But overall, I won't say there's much difference between Switzerland and the UK. I think Europe as a whole is very similar in their approach to research. Yeah. And how was, how was Canada then? Was that very different or was that, again, quite similar, would you say? I found that very different, but it's hard to speak more broadly because it's just one experience over many but you can tell it is different I think even the way funding is and securing positions is very different to how it is done in Europe Uh, so maybe that has an influence on kind of some of the group cultures yeah that's interesting I mean Medina from your experience obviously being in the US how, how does the funding kind of system is that is that very much you know difficult to kind of obtain funding would you say you mean like Canada versus US? Yeah, or just kind of the US in general. I'm just, you know, curious on the North American. Yeah, I think it's it's more like an institution-based than country-based, I would say so. Like, I think it depends on how much funding the university has and how much funding your PI has. So obviously from like a super new group, we don't have that much funding because like our group is two years old. Um, but like, if you compare to someone in the same institution, but but who has been there for like 20, 30 years, they have a ton of funding. Um, So it depends. So that's what I would say. Cool. So, yeah, we uh, also have seen that, you know, you've been looking to kind of secure fellowships and kind of advance your career further um, in the future beyond the postdoc. And just wondered kind of, have you found trying to secure a fellowship, you know, for a faculty position and, in, in, in you know as much as way as it could has Twitter in any way helped um, in, in terms of your network and that kind of thing? I think it's helped Twitter's helped in like establishing kind of places you would want to be in a bit more kind of detail or kind of stuff you wouldn't see just on the, the university website let's say so you get yeah. to know the people you get to know even what the departments tweeting about it can make a big difference so some of them are obviously very maybe active on twitter some have a lot of uh, edi stuff going on like those of good things that make you think yeah this is a place i want to work at and you can see so that's helped there and it's helped obviously get my name out there so that people perhaps know who i am when i approach them uh, that's obviously something that's quite important uh yeah, beyond that, there's a, there's a lot more involved beyond Twitter. I don't think Twitter can secure your fellowship, but it yeah. can get your foot in the door for some places. Yeah. Yeah. Have you applied for many at this point, or are you kind of investigating you know, that process at the moment? So the problem with fellowships, at least UK-based ones, is it's, you need support from a university before you can even apply. And that is competitive in itself. So... At the moment, I've not even been able to formally apply for a fellowship because I've not had the institutional support for one. And that's very dependent on the fellowship scheme as well. So 
one scheme that's a shorter amount of time, more applied funding, you would have to tailor your fellowship proposal for that for that scheme. Yeah. Uh, and at least the first round that I was applying for, it wasn't well suited for what I kind of already planned out for my research, which was maybe more fundamental uh, chemistry. So I'm hoping that the current round that's going on now is going to be more successful. I have some things lined up at least and some interest from universities now more interest at least so I'm a bit more hopeful now but it's very common that you're unlikely to get a fellowship on your first application Uh, as hard as that is to take in uh, especially with kind of time concerns or contracts running out uh, that's the the biggest challenge at the minute is you can see the end of the road but not knowing where you're gonna turn off next so We'll wait and see. So how how do you um, so as as you pointed out that it's not it's it's almost impossible to get something going like from the first application for the fellowship. Um, how do you deal with with rejections? I was curious to hear your. Uh, not well. <laughs> Is that a response? Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, like, do it, you have like a certain ritual or like certain mindset, certain philosophy about about because people approach it differently. Yeah, it's it's definitely difficult. I think you like there's been a lot more recently where people are opening up about rejection, so making it evident to the younger kind of PhD students, postdocs that this is very real uh, and. Sometimes you just have to have a, a bad day and then pick up and go for the next. So oftentimes I do that, but the, with any rejection, you normally get some feedback. Mm-hmm. So any, any application is always a step forward. So that's important to take from that. But oftentimes it's just a one yeah. sad day and then pick up and go as the next. Yeah, what you say there about yeah, kind of having a silver lining from a negative experience or yeah, kind of a rejection. It's always kind of a, a learning or possible learning experience. It's just how you frame it. And for sure it's about perspective. And you know, often I guess, I don't know from your experiences, but often it's hindsight that gives you those kind of experience uh, kind of ideas and perspectives. Yeah, that's exactly that. Yeah, you see something and it's like oh, now that yeah, is there sometimes where like the rejection can be so based or at least it seems based on something very, very minor. So it's hard to think, what if I did this? What if I did that? Uh, yeah. But then you just need to realize, I will do this on my next one. I will do that. And yeah, yeah. I think you pointed out- to progress. Yeah, you pointed out a really, really important thing uh, that I know there was a lot of conversation on Twitter about it too, is like how it's important to give the feedback to people when, uh, when, when they get rejected uh, because me personally, like a lot of people, for example, the grad school application rejections, I think those, to me at least, they hurt the most until like right now, even like sometimes, obviously I'm very happy where I am right now, but like some days I'm like, oh, I wonder what would have been if, if I was in this group or like if, if and, and, and not getting that feedback back or not even getting, getting that no, you're like, sometimes you're just wondering, oh, what if they didn't even see my email, you know, so like, making that effort to like give a feedback is, is so important for everyone's growth, scientific yeah. growth and like personal growth. 
yeah, I think the worst type of rejection you can have is where you have, you know, due to high volume of application, you know, we can't give yeah. you feedback. Like, well, that's yeah. the top one. Bad. I guess another question that I had um, was about the story that you were telling and how you were um, the, the first the first student of PhD student for your um, supervisor, right? So, could you tell us more about um, how that? Ref- so like reflecting back, how did that impact your, um, both you as a scientist and you as a, as a person when you were applying for postdocs and et cetera? Um, so there's a few things that came from it. There was obviously still uh, like uh, undergrads or master's students that were doing projects in the groups. I still had the opportunity to supervise students. There were still people in the lab. So I still had all of that. I wasn't just one person in the lab alone, thankfully. Uh, but you, I think one of the main things that came from that position was the website that I developed because there wasn't senior people around. Like I was had a lot of hands-on training when I first started. Uh, obviously, I, before I started my PhD, I'd never even seen a strength line or heard of one. Uh, so I had hands-on training, but my supervisor couldn't be there to hold my hand every every time so that's what came from that I didn't have anyone senior to kind of kind of give me that insight so that's why I developed that to help other people that might be in a similar situation so that was a main one that really was a big one and I think you just I got a lot of independence from that which is obviously uh, important for kind of research just so you can do stuff on your own report back to your supervisor a week or two later give them a rundown about everything that you had so I think that came from that also I think they're the main two I think there's other ones as well which were like because there was a small group with not many resources we kind of learned to adapt from that perspective which is important but then everywhere else I've been since is like a well-funded lab so I've not had to do money-saving techniques or use uh do you know what I mean stuff like that which is can impact people's research I've been fortunate since to not have that but I think like yeah invaluable experience and you know adaptability and resilience are two key you know besides just being a scientist just kind of life skills to have um definitely so also, I'm a yeah. huge fan of your website. Literally every single person that I see, I'm like, have you seen that website? It's so helpful. I was, because I, I when I started as in my first year and I was doing like pre though, and I asked my PI to show me that like once, twice. And I was like, okay, I'm embarrassed to like keep asking for her. So, so I, I went on, I found your website and I was like, oh my God, this is so helpful. So thank you for saving me from embarrassment <laughs> of asking that, how to do that. So, yeah. That's exactly that's who it's for as well. Like, it's it's not for someone who already knows how to use a strength line who uses one every day. Let's say it's for the people who don't do it every day. It's for the people who might have to freeze pump for something. They do it once or twice a year, so then they don't remember the details, and you just want a, a quick reminder of how to do something like that. So that's that's what it was made for. So that's 
So actually, uh, that was kind of going to be the segue into the into the question. So you, you kind of yeah stole stole the question from us a bit, but just around like how do you think? So Medina talked about it, their personal experiences of using it. But how do you think on a wider basis? Again, if we talk about Twitter, how do you think it's impacted the chemistry community? Kind of having that resource there. Have you had other kind of positive comments and feedback? I've had a lot. Yeah, it's there's been you get it from yeah people at every stage, people that are just starting out doing their first research projects you get it you get feedback from the PIs who kind of have that on hand to give to their students when they first enter the lab to just be like look this is what you're going to be doing and it's not meant to be a alternative to training it can't be but to have something there to back up what you're doing I think that's where it's become useful and I hope in the future and there's plans for it is that it can become more formalized from the perspective of uh, chemical education papers and stuff like that but since it's been an entirely personal project that I've had to do in my spare time it's not got to the stage where it can be formalized in that sense yet. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I mean, I could foresee, I don't know if it's just something you considered, but doing, you know, virtual reality type stuff with it and, you know, enacting kind of Schlenkline type techniques and, you know, be able to show students how to do it would be quite interesting. There's, yeah, there's so many avenues. I think, yeah, just having something more interactive, yeah. having videos, having so many different options, I think. I've got the guides at the minute, but even... I wouldn't say I'm a pro illustrator. So even if I just had the resources to hand that off to someone else, I, you could see how much better and bigger and better it become. And it doesn't have to be limited to that as well. And that's what I hope other people realize is that you know a certain thing. Why not share it with other people in a formal way? Obviously, it does take your time and whatever, yeah. and this is clearly why it's not been done before. Um, but the rewards you get from it and the pride and satisfaction, and you, even if it helps one person, you've done a good job. Yeah, I was going to say think, that. Because like you, it's, it's, it's so hard, especially like during PhD, to have time to manage anything else in your life. And like you're putting your time and effort into, into doing that to just help the community. And that's like, thank you from, from all the people who used it. I'm, So another question we had was about the real-time chem ambassador. Uh, We wondered how you became a real-time chem ambassador and if you could tell us more about the role and what it involves. At the minute it's more just kind of promoting all the the stuff that real-time chem does already. So a lot of sharing, retweeting, engaging people who use the real-time chem hashtag. We've been meaning to because there's a, a group of us who've been meaning to kind of have our own little projects or things going on I think life has keep kept getting in the way but it's on the tables of things you can do so I had at least proposed an idea early on that I've not got around to yet uh, but I still want to do it and it's like meet the new PI so when people get a new independent position kind of have do some Twitter posts or a blog post to be like, kind of welcome them as a new person. And for people on Twitter who aren't aware of who the researchers are yet or 
whatever I think is a nice way to kind of introduce them to kind of the broader community. So that's one idea I had. And I know that other people have little projects kind of relating to the real-time camp ambassador thing. But at the minute, we need to probably need to do a bit more work to get something more formal together through that. Yeah. No, that's a really interesting idea. I should say as well, uh, shameless plug, I'm also one of those real-time camp ambassadors, I think, for like Europe or something. And yeah, it, I think we were going to do something with real-time camp week, which was back in, I think, November. Um, but I think due to, like Andre says, like the pandemic and other things that we've kind of delayed it now until I think this year or, or next. And, you know, that will be where we kind of bring our you know, knowledge and experience to, to the fore, really. So. This year coming up, like, we had good plans for the November one, but it would have been too rushed to do it properly. So it's all based on diversity and inclusion and stuff like that. And obviously that's a sensitive topic. So you don't want to rush and get that wrong, let's say. So we're hoping that this year when we do that, we have a lot more kind of stuff put together to make it a really big event. I'm not very uh, familiar with that. Could you tell more about what, what does it mean to be a real-time chem? I'm, I'm familiar with the hashtag real-time chemistry but I think that's, that's something different like how do you become an ambassador and like what is it all about it's fairly recent like it was only in the last year or two that they put out kind of a advert to get people to become one so it's more because at the minute the real-time chem is kind of led by one person but there's two people kind of doing it and it's again just that's not their day job that's just something they do on the side uh, and it's got however tens of thousands of followers so it's you probably need some assistance from other people to get it going so we don't have access to your account to do stuff but we can still retweet the real-time chems if you see a cool chemistry post that isn't hashtag with real-time chem then we can do that uh, and just engage in it and yeah there's always new people coming to twitter and sharing their chemistry so it's bring them into that community so it's just advocating for that yeah yeah and, I, and i'm sure you know i can i think it's jason and laura who kind of run it uh the main kind of account i'm sure if yeah if other people want to get involved like feel free to probably reach out to either of them and you know if you'd like to become an ambassador you'd probably be able to uh, i'm sure the more people they can have on board the the better so that's really cool thanks for letting yeah. me know now now i know more about it <laughs> cool So, yeah, Andre, when you um, gave us the form uh, for the episode, you talked about kind of wanting to keep uh, fit and healthy kind of when not in the lab. And we just wondered kind of what it, what it is you do on a you know daily, weekly basis to kind of keep fit and healthy uh, when you're not working. So me and some of us from the lab, mainly one of the PhD students, just go to the gym after work. So that's the main thing we do. We we always say we got to go do more, uh, but we realize here as well, the working hours are quite long. It's just Switzerland in general. And I think people just inherently work longer in research labs. So it's six o'clock and it's, it's always a struggle to try and get out uh, to go to the gym. But every time you go, it's that kind of relief. It's that uh, kind of mental break to get away. And it makes a big difference. You you leave the gym and feeling a bit more revived 
more energy to do something even if you need to do some work in that evening at least you have that break to do it and that's I've been keeping fit and healthy since I started my PhD essentially or I started shortly before but I found it a big thing I thought that was always my go-to kind of distraction even sometimes if you're just going for a run you go for an hour run I unashamedly just daydream about chemistry for the entire run but it's it's good it's it's just a a way to kind of yeah you you don't write anything down I don't (laughs) I don't come back and remember what I'm thinking about but it's good from that perspective obviously sometimes I don't think about chemistry when I'm in the gym uh, (laughs) most of the time but it's been I've it's been a good yeah it's a good break I think if you have a keep healthy outside of your work it kind of balances your work-life balance anyway Mm -hmm. no 100% I'm also yeah kind of advocate for yeah kind of being hit uh, fit and healthy and you know myself I do also try an hour or two a week to go to the gym and just yeah keep fit and it is a really good outlet just to kind of relax and let your mind like you say wander um, and just not worry about work or anything else uh, going on so that's great good um we have a random question for you um that's the following so if you could live anywhere for a month which you haven't yet visited so the place where, uh, that you haven't yet visited where would it be and why hmm. interesting so it'd have to be somewhere very different because I've, i think i've got a decent sense of a few different places i think i'd be now heavily influenced by my girlfriend and have to say Colombia. Uh, <laughs> Primarily for the food, I think, uh, but just to kind of experience something completely different again. I wasn't really, I wouldn't say that bothered about traveling when I was younger. I know a lot of people are, mm-hmm. and having the opportunity to do that through work was kind of better in my sense, kind of just to experience a proper living there. So it's not a holiday there, you're living there. Uh, which was good so I think anything different is always good anywhere with new food is always good no that's cool I think yeah food is I mean a big part of a lot of different cultures all over the globe so you know that's that's always a a reason to go somewhere Um, I think South America for sure is yeah somewhere I'd like to go I think thinking maybe Argentina or Brazil to to live there for a a bit would be interesting Um, yeah I've never been back to that side of the world so you know that would be kind of my place I think what about you Medina where where would you like to go yeah I've been thinking about that um I would say somewhere in Europe like like Spain but um I would also be curious to see what it's like to live somewhere in another island the the ones that people go to like for honeymoon and stuff um because it's interesting what like people how people actually live there if you're not like on a on a honeymoon or like on a vacation um what is it like? Like maybe be like some uh, yoga instructor, or like you know, just like a low key life for a month. Is that somewhere like uh, Maldives or Seychelles, somewhere like that? Or... No, like a random place, like the one that people are not that familiar with. Okay. So yeah, but yeah, so it's not like super crowded with tourists. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's that's really cool to hear Andre about kind of where yeah where you want to go and hopefully you get the chance to do that at some point post you know everything that's going on yeah, I'm sure I will at least for a holiday not so much for a, 
living there. <laughs> but <laughs> at least a, a long, long holiday is definitely in the plans in the Fantastic. future. I suppose it's sunnier as well, a bit more than yeah, Europe at, at this time of year. I think some places are surprising. I think uh, there's certain places from what I know that it's not too different to the UK, for example, depending on where you are and altitude and stuff. But yeah. obviously, if you go somewhere coastal near the horizon, uh, not horizon, the equator, sorry, then <laughs> you're going to get good weather. 100%. No. Great. So as you always know, we kind of finish off with a philosophical question. So today's is, uh, as I say, quite an interesting one. And it's, do you think parallel universes exist? And if so, how would alternate universe Andre kind of be as a person, do you think? I'm pretty sure I had a thought about this earlier today. Um, and the silly, the silly thing I was just thinking when it comes to parallel universes is like, I've discovered or someone's discovered something, have they discovered it there? Yeah. Uh, to answer the question, I don't think they exist. Uh, I don't really have much to say about that. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I guess from the perspective of more a jokey side, I'd have to say that a parallel injury would be an organic chemist, sadly. <laughs> that's, that's the fun one. Everyone <laughs> right now, but yeah. I'm thinking alternate me might be something like a painter, like something completely less left of field, like completely different. Um, that or a chef, I think, because I do have a enjoyment of cooking. So, yeah. Yeah, I think like it still has to be like tangential. It still has to be like <laughs> mirrored. So that's why I think organic chemists is a, yeah. <laughs> the one for me versus someone completely different. Yeah. Obviously, if there's infinite amounts, I'm sure there's. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious why you didn't say physical chemist because that's like far off your... I don't mind that. I'm not too... Oh, so you mind organic chemist? <laughs> I'd, I'd prefer to be a physical chemist than an organic chemist. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, why Why there's so much? I don't know. It's just... You're just joking. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just a jokey and it's always a... It's always just a fun Yeah, it's joke. always a I have... joke. Fantastic. Sorry. Cool. Um, I think that's, yeah, been a really kind of deep dive into kind of you as a person kind of yeah your journey and kind of where you want to go as well uh but just want to yeah say thank you for coming on um and agreeing to be on the podcast i think it's been we want you to have you on for a while now so it's just been able to arrange the date so it's been really good to yeah have this chat yeah it's been great speaking to you thank you so much for the invitation thank you for coming so if people want to reach out to you then uh what's the best way to get in touch you can find me on twitter so just Andrew Boris is my name on there. Uh, you can contact me through my website if there's anything relating to frontline chemistry or even more practical chemistry that you want to reach out. I think Twitter's still the best one since I'm on it far too much. Uh, and you can be a bit less formal if you just reach out on Twitter versus having to construct a politely sounding email so that's the best one i also have an instagram but a chemistry instagram that is but i'm very on and off with that so that's probably not the best one mm-hmm. and if people i had a question as well if people had ideas on your schlenk uh schlenkland survival guide like is there a kind of form people can fill in to kind of suggest ideas and feedback yeah there's a there's a contact page on there and i'm always trying to get more ideas for that there's a lot of ideas that i have in the works that i haven't got around to doing but it's it's especially that 
yeah, I, I need ideas from people because there's it's clearly something that's missing then. So yeah, if people have ideas uh, and kind of some input as well, that would be really great. Obviously I can facilitate the illustrations if there needs to be illustrations, but I've there's already been some great suggestions from other people that I've added to the website already. So well that's brilliant. Yeah. We'll definitely put the link to that in the show notes and yeah to your Twitter as well. So if people do want to get in touch, they can they can do so. Um and yeah, I guess all that's left to say is thank you again for being a, an awesome guest. Uh if people want to follow us, they can over on Twitter at Camp Convos Pod. And yeah, just want to say thank you again for listening and have a great day. Bye everyone.